had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, see here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should I be wasting the soil? The gardener replied, sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of God for all of us. Thanks be to God. I ask you please to pray with me. May the words that I say and the reflections that go through all of our minds, may these give you pleasure, God, you who are our rock, you who save us. Amen. A number of years ago, Reverend Harry Nichol did a program for the clergy of the various districts of our, of our Northern Illinois Conference. At the time, he was the president of our Conference Foundation or Endowment Fund that helps to manage the endowment funds of various congregations and also supports Christian stewardship. His purpose was to speak about stewardship, and he gave a series of slides, a PowerPoint presentation, about trends in giving in the United States. And it was really grim. <laughs> so he showed how back in the 40s and 50s, people in the United States were often very generous, and, and almost all of their charitable gifts went toward congregations or to um, Christian organizations, to nonprofits related to congregations. Over the years, that trend has really shifted, and now no longer is the bulk of the money that is given to nonprofits, no longer is that given primarily to congregations or congregational-related entities. Rather, the majority of the money goes to colleges and universities and medical centers. And the proportion of giving that goes toward churches has gone from the vast majority down to a much smaller amount. He also talked about giving within the United Methodist Church, and he showed about how um, there is a decent proportion of people who are United Methodist who give to the church, but there's also a significant number that are active in the life of a congregation and members, but actually don't give to the church, or he also showed about how the number of people who tithe, meaning giving one-tenth to the church, how that has gone down. So it was slide after slide after slide of bad news, and we're all kind of <laughs> sinking down in our pews. And then he put up a slide that said, ain't it awful? And we all cracked up. <laughs> bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news. Ain't it awful? And then he was able, in getting us to laugh, he was able to shift it and to say, yes, here are some pretty grim statistics and... Here's some very specific things we can do to turn this around and to invite Christian generosity in our congregations. And the rest of the presentation was very helpful and very hopeful. But I think about that whole dynamic of ain't it awful, because I think a lot of us can relate to that. Um, it's really easy and really common to point to something going on out there, ain't it awful? And so I want to give you a chance. We're going to do a little call and response here. Um, I'm going to describe something, and you're going to respond to ain't it awful. So first, we're going to, we're going to practice with ain't it awful. Ain't it awful. Ain't it awful. So 
we can come up with all sorts of things. So issues in the state of Illinois. Gridlock in Washington, D.C. The rise of addictions in American life. Kids addicted to social media. How many people that we know have illnesses and struggles? We could go about 20 minutes, couldn't we? <laughs> like, we could just go on and on and on with all these things going on out there, and isn't it awful? And they are awful, but that's not necessarily the end of the story. Too often, we give our energy to the first part of that, to pointing out what out there is awful. Also, when we're pointing out what out there is awful, we're off, we are also at some level, considering ourselves above that, or innocent of that, or maybe trying to show why that would never happen to us. There is this human tendency to kind of focus on the bad thing going on out there, and maybe not to pay attention to our own issues as much, or to fuss about some other thing trying to prove why that won't happen to us, or why we, we're innocent. Jesus knows that tendency in us, and he did a rather startling thing in today's gospel lesson to help his followers hear what they were doing and to shift the way that they thought about it. Our passage begins with Jesus surrounded by his disciples, and then uh, someone says, you know, Jesus, did, did you hear about those people from the Galilee that were offering their sacrifices down at the temple, and Pilate had them killed? And Jesus says, and now, were, were you thinking that the people who were killed in that political oppression, were you, were you thinking that they were worse sinners than other people? He says, oh no, they were not worse sinners than anyone else. But if you don't repent, you may die just as they did. What? And then Jesus gives another example about some people who died from a disaster. The Tower of Siloam fell and 18 people were killed. Do you think that they were worse than other people? No, you don't repent. You too will die as they did. Wow, Jesus seems a little harsh here, but he's actually offering us a powerful form of grace, getting our focus away from the pointing outward and diagnosing, inviting us to look inward and invite Christ's grace in there. But that outward diagnosing, we do it a lot. There's that really common practice of hearing of the sufferings of someone else and then coming up with reasons. Oh, this happened to them because. This happens so often with cancer. You'll hear about someone's cancer and then you'll hear, well, you know what a terrible diet they have. Well, you know they're a smoker. Well, you know, I mean, there's a whole list of reasons why this particular person got cancer, some reason why they're more sinful than other people, and that's why they got cancer. There's a wonderful and surprisingly funny book written by a professor at Duke Divinity School. Her name is Kate Bowler, and she wrote a book called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies That I Have Loved. She, as a young woman working to get tenure at Duke Divinity School with a young child, was suddenly diagnosed with cancer. And she was stunned by this flood of reasons that were thrown at her of why this bad thing had happened to her. 
Was she not eating right? Was there a problem in her lifestyle? Was there some unconfessed sin? There was all of that kind of stuff. You must be worse than other people. That's why you have cancer. But then there was another style that was troubling in a different way. You're better than other people. That's why you got cancer. How's that for an argument? Oh, you got this because you're a seminary professor, and when you get better, you can witness to the world. This will be amazing. God is going to use this cancer. God gave you cancer so that you could witness. And Kate Bowler listened to all this stuff thrown at her and would have none of it. <laughs> it said, no, I got cancer because I got cancer. I'm not better than other people. I'm not worse than other people. Let's pray and ask for God to come into the situation and redeem it. I was in a book group that studied this book, and we all just cracked up but pointed to all these things that we had heard or heard people say in our congregations that are so damaging. Here's the reason why when something terrible happens. So we see people do that with illnesses or cancer. We also see people do it when there's problems in a family. You know, oh, this child is having a difficult time. Well, then here come the diagnoses. Well, you know those parents are too strict. Well, you know those parents are too permissive. Well, you know there's been issues in that family. And again, this whole list of reasons why a particular family is suffering, generally a list to show why that would never happen in my family. That happens in other families that have those parenting problems. So easy to point to the sufferings of others and come up with excuses or reasons that indirectly are a way to distance ourselves from it. Oh, that suffering won't happen to us. So after Jesus spoke about the suffering of those who were killed while offering their sacrifices, he then gave the example coming out of natural, just a natural disaster. A tower fell and 18 people were killed. Once again, in this situation where they couldn't possibly have been guilty or brought that on, still, they suffered and they died. And Jesus points to that. Do you think they were worse? No. But if you do not repent, you too will perish. What Jesus is basically saying is stop pointing outward and start dealing with your own mess. Stop coming up with excuses for why that person deserved it or why you, you might be exempt Look at your own life. Jesus pushes us to open our hearts to the Holy Spirit, to allow God to see what is in our hearts and, and what kind of attitudes or behaviors may have crept into our souls that aren't healthy and aren't life-giving and are not worthy of someone who follows Jesus, how we can invite the Spirit to come in and, and clean that out of us and give us new life. Jesus is pushing his disciples on their need to repent. may seem like a harsh word, but it's not. It's a loving word. He is letting them know that all that energy spent on pointing out to others and diagnosing other people's problems gets us nowhere. In fact, can leave us feeling more sad or more desperate. But when we open our hearts to Christ's love and grace now, when we repent, when we confess what we know that is not of God and, and invite the Holy Spirit to change us, there's new possibilities, there's new life, and there's freedom, and that's available right now. None of us needs to wait to repent, to invite Christ into our lives, and to experience that sense of right relationship or justifying grace. Brothers and sisters, 
I think most of us want to avoid suffering. I certainly do. And yet the truth is we will suffer. And yes, there's certain things that we do in our lives that increase our experience of suffering, but there's also suffering that's just going to come to us in the nature of day-to-day life. And following Jesus does not exempt us from suffering. Frankly, following Jesus in a certain way will increase our suffering. Because when we follow Jesus, we allow ourselves to be formed into the body of Christ. And then if one part of the body suffers, we all suffer with it. When we allow ourselves to be one family, when part of the family's hurting, we hurt too. And we offer our prayers for others, our intercessory prayers, and we trust God, but there's a wound to that and acknowledging that suffer and suffering the way that Christ works in our heart to open our eyes to what's going on outside our own little circle. And there's suffering in having a heart for people who are dealing with things that aren't happening in our own close circle. Situations of deep poverty, of war and injustice. To have the heart for that hurts. And following Jesus softens our heart for people in deep suffering and means that we will suffer more. Following Jesus and repenting does not reduce our likelihood of suffering. It actually increases it, but it also means that we can be in right relationship with God when that suffering comes. And what a difference it makes to be right with God in times of suffering. It doesn't prevent the suffering, but it helps us bear it and understand it in a new and powerful way. Are repentance and suffering the end of the story? They're not. Jesus goes on and tells the story of that fig tree, the fig tree that looks hopeless, that the owner of the property, you know, come on, no no fruit after three years, I'm giving up. But perhaps the gardener knows that that fig tree hadn't received quite enough attention. And so the gardener says, you know, let me dig around it. Let me put some fertilizer on it. Give it a year. Let's see if it bears fruit. We don't know whether that fig tree will bear fruit in a year, but let's help it, let's support it, and give it a chance. In the same way, our own spiritual lives may be very fruitful right now, or they may look a whole lot like my pathetic plant. Lent is a beautiful time to water and fertilize and give some sunlight to our souls, to think about what, our, what kind of food our souls need to be strengthened and clarified in our day-to-day lives. Lent is a beautiful time to increase our reading of Scripture or to rededicate ourselves to our worship lives or to serve in a way that might be new to us, to extend ourselves in the name of Jesus. And in that uh, offering ourselves for Christ's fruitfulness, we may well bear fruit, fruit that will last Christ wants us to be people who bear fruit, the fruits of the Spirit and love, joy, peace, patience, generosity, all of those qualities that uh, reflect Christ's love and presence in us. With some good care this Lent, who knows what fruit Christ can bring out of us. So when we are focused on pointing outward and ain't it awful, Christ invites us to Look at that, to recognize we do that, and then to laugh. To know that following Jesus will not exempt us from suffering, but instead that we can open our hearts, we can repent, 
We can ask for new life and receive freedom and new possibilities so that when someone around us starts in on, ain't it awful, we can say, yes, but I saw God working here. Thanks be to God. Amen.